Section 6 of Social Life in England, 1750-1850 by F. J. Folks Jackson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Lecture 2, George Crabbe, Part 3. I must now pass somewhat hurriedly over a long period. In 1785, Crabbe published the newspaper, and for twenty-two years he settled down to his clerical duties and did not reappear as an author. He lived at Stathern and Muston in Leicestershire, the happy domestic life of a country clergyman, returning to Suffolk when his wife inherited his share in the estate of her uncle, Mr. Tovell, at Parham. In 1807, Crabbe appeared once more as a poet with the parish register, and from this time his fame was unquestioned. The borough followed, and then the tales. But I need not weary you with dates and details. A new generation arose to encourage Crabbe. His first poems had been hailed by Burke, Sir Joshua Reynolds, Johnson, and Fox, his later by Scott, Byron, Lord Holland, and Rogers. His last days were spent in comfort and comparative affluence at Trowbridge, to which he had been appointed by a later Duke of Rutland. In 1817 he was lionized in London, and in 1822 he paid his famous visit to Edinburgh, and found Sir Walter Scott in the midst of that preposterous pageant in which the King and Sir William Curtis, aldermen of the city of London, delighted the Scottish nation by appearing at Holyrood, tremendous in Stuart Tartan with Claymore, Philippeg, and other accessories of the garb of old Gaul. Scott, unwearied by his efforts to organize the king's visit, had time to welcome a brother poet, and it will be remembered that so delighted was he to greet one whose writings had so often occupied his attention that he sat down on the sacred glass out of which George the Fourth had deigned to drink with the natural result. Crabbe lived on till February 1832, passing away full of years and honors in the seventy-eighth year of his age. Crabbe's works were sufficient to fill seven volumes, and it is not possible to do more than endeavor to form an estimate of him by limiting oneself to a few topics. I must content myself with three, and I fear that even then I cannot do justice to these. Those I propose are, one, Crab as reflecting the manners of his age, two, as a delineator of character, three, his place as a poet. One, I have spoken of Crab's scientific education, such as it was, and of his power of observation, and I find even in later life more of the doctor than the parson. It is for this reason that his work is of more value than that of greater poets in reflecting his age, for Crabbe was not one of those who let fancy lead the way, but dealt with sober realities of experience, and even refrained from generalizing or theorizing. For the religious life of the period, Crabbe's poems are an invaluable document, of which historians have, I suggest, made too little use. There is no reason to suppose that our author took orders simply to secure literary leisure. His early diaries prove him a most devout man, and the fact that he occupied himself twenty-two years in parish work, without publishing, shows his devotion to his profession. 
yet he apparently saw no harm in accepting two livings in dorsetshire from the lord chancellor which he scarcely ever went near but took other work in the vale of Beva. nor did he feel any compunctions later in leaving his parishes in the midlands to the care of a non-resident clergyman in order to live on his wife's property in suffolk and he evidently considered the then duke of rutland unduly slow in providing for him he was not always popular with his parishioners this was not unnatural at aldborough where he had been known under less prosperous circumstances but he met with a good deal of opposition when after his long residence in suffolk he returned to muston and at trowbridge he was at first considered too worldly for his flock and only slowly won their sincere respect a strict moralist he had no dislike of social pleasure and as a staunch whig he shrank from enthusiasm of every kind the serious and the profane alike distrusted him the worldly remonstrated at his description of the workhouse chaplain to which allusion has been made and in deference to the complaints of the religious world the vigorous lines of the library calvin grows gentle in this silent coast nor finds a single heretic to roast make way for a weaker couplet with a half-line plagiarized from dryden socinians here and calvinists abide and thin partitions angry chiefs divide let us consider the clergy and the religious teachers generally as he describes them i can only allude to the five rectors whom old dibble the village clerk in the parish register remembered first comes good master addle who filled the sevenfold surplice fairly out and dozing died next was parson peel whose favourite text was i will not spare you and with piercing jokes and he'd a plenteous store raised the tithes all round dr granspear followed peel a man who never stinted his nappy beer and whom even cool dissenters wished and hoped that a man so kind a way to heaven though not their own might find after him came the author rector careless was he of surplus hood and band and kindly took them as they came to hand he was succeeded by the young man from cambridge assailed in his youth by a clamorous sect who preached conviction so violently that our best sleepers started as they slept but says old dibble down he sank upon his wretched bed and gloomy crotchets filled his wandering head and it is on this point that crabbe is so illuminating as to the spirit of his age his difficulties as a clergyman were due rather to the fanaticism than to the indifference of his flock in sir eustace grey a very powerful description of a madman who finds religious peace at last the poet concludes but ah though time could yield relief and soften woes it cannot cure would we not suffer pain and grief to have our reasons sound and sure then let us keep our bosoms pure our fancy's favourite flights suppress prepare the body to endure and bend the mind to meet distress and then his guardian care implore whom demons dread and men adore as the doctor recommends a moderate and temperate life as the best preventive of disease 
and distrusts strong remedies and universal panaceas so crabbe true to the best medical tradition regards the pastoral work of healing the soul tolerant in most respects he is severe on what the eighteenth century styled enthusiasm and on sentimentalism in religion generally thus in the borough we have in the letter on religious sects a description of the contempt the calvinistic methodists had for church teaching hark to the churchman day by day he cries children of men be virtuous be wise seek patience justice temperance meekness truth in age be courteous be sedate in youth so they advise and when such things be read how can we wonder that their flocks are dead this cold morality as scott makes mr trumbull call it in red gauntlet is contrasted with a really rousing sermon further and further spread the conquering word as loud he cried the battle of the lord even those apart who were the sound denied fell down instinctive and in spirit died nor stayed he yet his eye his frown his speech his very gesture had a power to teach with outstretched arms strong voice and piercing call he won the field and made the dagons fall and thus in triumph took his glorious way through scenes of horror terror and dismay crabbe often found his work hindered by a sort of fatalistic quietism which gave no hope to the unconverted even when they sought the aid of the minister of religion in abelkeen we have the story of a merchant's clerk who abandoned his faith and then in days of poverty came for help said the good man and then rejoice therefore tis good to tremble prospects then are fair when the lost soul is plunged in just despair once thou wert simply honest just and pure whole as thou thoughtst and never wished to cure what must i do i said my soul to free do nothing man it will be done for thee but must i not my reverend guide believe if thou art called thou wilt the faith receive but i repent not angry he replied if thou art called thou needst not beside attend on us and if tis heaven's decree the call will come if not ah woe for thee End of section six.